thank you very much. And also to those who came late, I'm afraid you've missed my one and only joke of the entire session. Um, well, I'll repeat it. Uh, <laughs> my joke was that I'm the warm-up for Simon, and you're here, obviously, for him. However, this is the History and Policy Forum, and therefore, since Simon's going to be concentrating mainly, I think, on policy, although I'm sure he'll stray into history as well, uh, I will give a brief overview of the, the history, the development, if you like, of employment policy within the European Union, just so we have some common idea of where we're all coming from, if not a common idea of where we're going, because that's for Simon to discuss. Um, the, um, the, the, so I'm going to say, really, I'll, I'll divide my, my topic into three sections. First of all, I'm going to say a little bit about the aims um, and origins of employment policy. I will then say a little bit about the basis of employment policy and then an evaluation of where it's got us so far. Um, so to first of all then, the origins of employment policy, obviously the origins of the European Union after the war were mainly to prevent German remilitarisation uh, re ever again. And uh, by integrating the German economy into the European economy, the idea was to prevent German uh, remilitarisation and to bring peace and prosperity to the European Union. Uh, as it became. Um, and we start off with coal and steel, as we know, and then that morphs later into the European Economic Community. But the terminology is very economic. We talk about the, the coal and steel community, the economic community. But in fact, what I would want to argue is that employment and social policy are very much part and parcel of the endeavour right from the outset. Um, and the reasons for this really is because employment policy develops as a, arguably a kind of spillover from economic policy. Even when the coal and steel community was founded in 1951 with the original six member states, uh, Italy, France, Germany and the Benelux countries, it was clear that rationalisation of coal and steel was going to involve closure of plants, redeployment of workers, redundancies and the rest. And this meant that an economic schema naturally kind of spilled over into employment effects. How do you deal with redundancies? How do you notify and consult workers who are being made redundant? How do you redeploy them? How do you find new work for them? And the social element of economic policy was therefore uh, an integral part of economic policy from the very start. In other words, it's not simply a bolt-on that can be seen as separate from that. And this becomes ever more clear when we have the European Economic Community itself with the Treaty of Rome in 1957 which establishes the four freedoms, uh, the freedom of movement of, of goods, um, uh, services, capital and labour. And the point here is that uh, during the 1960s it became very clear that uh, in order to ensure that, for example, the movement of labour was a reality and not just a theoretical construct, you had to have quite a lot of ancillary policies to ensure it took place. I mean, for example, something like uh, mutual recognition of qualifications. There's not much point in having mobility of labour if an Italian engineer finds that his or her qualifications are not recognised in Germany or in Belgium. Um, and in the same way, if you are made unemployed in another country, if you're not eligible for unemployment benefits or for sickness benefits or for maternity pay, then that's going to be a real barrier to social mobility. And therefore, the EU, I'm going to call it the EU, it wasn't the EU in those days, it was the EC, but I'm going to call it the EU. Uh, the EU therefore got drawn in to uh, discussions about how you recognised qualifications um, and over 30, 40, 50 years we now have a system where your qualifications are recognised across all the member states and the same for uh, mutual benefits when you go to France or any other member state, uh, you are eligible for the same social rights, employment rights as a native of that country, um, unemployment and sickness and the rest. 
And therefore, you can see that employment policy is really, as I say, a, a necessary aspect of the whole impetus of the European Union, which is, in this case, the example I'm using, mobility of labour. But there are other areas as well where employment policy becomes very, very important. I mean, for example, um, in, in terms of having a level playing field in order to ensure that there's a genuine common market for, of competition across the member states, um, you need to ensure that labour costs are not systematically skewed in favour of a country which has better labour rights than another country. And you find this in rather anomalous uh, treaty provisions in the Treaty of Rome, where Article 119 requires member states to ensure equal pay for work of equal value, and Article 120 requires paid holidays. And you might think, well, why on earth are paid holidays in the Treaty of Rome? And the reason was because the French already had these provisions, and French employers in the 1950s were already worried that they would be undercut by German employers who didn't have these same provisions. And therefore, to ensure that German employers were giving the same rights to their workers and therefore facing the same kind of labour costs, they had this provision built into the Treaty of Rome. And this question of kind of trying to harmonise labour costs is something that, again, is part and parcel of the drive towards creating a, a, a single market across the European Union. Um, and, of course, as European integration takes place between the economies, there's more market turbulence. Uh, companies will uh, transfer undertakings across borders. You have mergers, acquisitions, rationalisation of economic processes. And this, again, causes turbulence in labour markets. And therefore, you need workers' rights to ensure that, for example, workers are notified and, and uh, have participation rights in cases of mergers, acquisitions, all those sorts of things, and 2P regulations, all that. Um, and equally for redundancy provisions, all these sorts of areas. Um, and so really, the way in which the European Union from the start saw the way to, to create this living level playing field and to ensure that social dumping wasn't going to become an issue, in other words, employers taking advantage and relocating enterprises to countries with fewer labour rights and therefore lower labour costs. The way to prevent this was by having a floor of labour rights across all the member states. And, and that really is the main driver behind uh, where employment policy comes from. And of course, it's naturally uh, supplemented, it's, it, it's reinforced by the political agenda of left to centre and left parties within the European Union itself, and also by the trade union movement, obviously, because all the member states of the European Union have had long uh, independent histories of uh, uh, of labour rights that feed into the way in which policy is generated at European Union level as well. Um, so the, the point I want to make really is that you know being a member of the European Union is not just about economic integration. It is necessarily also part of buying into the social dimension of the European Union. So the question then is what are the bases for these rights? Um, and broadly speaking, you have two bases. One is hard law, the other is soft law. Um, on hard law, uh, because you have the treaty itself, I've already mentioned uh, Articles 119, 120, but equally you get many more provisions coming later in uh, the Maastricht treaties, Amsterdam, Nice and so on, all of which have had implications for labour rights. Um, and you also have a whole raft of directives uh, which are binding legislation on European Union members covering areas like sexual discrimination, equal opportunities, health and safety, employment protection, participation, one thinks of European works councils, you think of the information on consultation of employees directive, and a whole variety of miscellaneous issues like, for example, contracts of employment, which are a requirement on the European Union. Now, in fact, 
some years ago, um, I edited this book on employment policy, which is available from all good bookshops, probably a few bad ones as well. Um, but I've listed at the end of that uh, 70, so that's 70 directives, which form this floor of rights through directives, and that they cover a very, very wide range of areas. In fact, they've almost become, we don't notice anymore, it's like the colour of the wallpaper. It's so much part and parcel of our employment environment that we don't really know anymore what comes from the European Union, what comes from the UK. Um, and I think that's a, a very important point that, you know, 43 years, is it? 44 years we've been members of the European Union. Over that period, we have integrated into our labour system all these directives and so on. Um, and of course, more recently, the European Pillar of Social Rights uh, proclaimed at the Social Summit for Fair Jobs and Growth in November 2017. This also got unanimous support from institutions of the European Union, and it contains three chapters on equal opportunities, fair working conditions, and social protection. And again, this too feeds into the kind of uh, the, the, the very complex web of employment legislation that we have. And of course, one also has to mention the European Court of Justice rulings, which are critically important too, um, which have, uh, to just take one example, Bilka Kaufhaus from 1987, which ensured that part-time workers have equal access to pension rights. And this was a case that came through indirect discrimination. The woman, at, um, a female employee, a part-timer at Bilke Kaufhaus, which is a big German departmental store, was denied pension entitlements from her company, and she took it all the way through the European Court, who found that she was being discriminated against on the ground that she was a woman, and therefore, indirectly, she, her pension rights were being discriminated, and therefore, the, the, the employment regime had to change. And, and part-timers now in Britain have rights to, to pension entitlements because of a European Court of Justice ruling. Again, probably most people have no idea about this, but it's such an important point that you know, we have to mention it. Um, in addition, there's soft law, and I, again, I, I just want to say a few words about soft law, which is often uh, passed over in all this. Um, by about 20 years ago or so, late 1990s, uh, there was a shift in policy in the European Union towards employment promotion. I think um, most of the directives had been passed really by the early 2000s. And the problem there was unemployment and employment rates. And you have the Luxembourg summit in 1997, um, uh, the introduction of what are called national action plans for employment, which require member states every year to come together to discuss active labour market policy to ensure that workers have equal access to jobs. Now the idea here was to use peer review and peer assessment as a way of encouraging countries to harmonise their active labour market policies. For example, um, Belgium has a particular problem with inserting younger workers into the labour market. Other countries may have problems with the uh, unemployment rates amongst older workers, may not be able to insert older or retrain older workers for new opportunity, opportunities. Most countries face problems about equal opportunities and discrimination. All these areas, uh, countries would come together on an annual basis, they would discuss their active labour market policies under these headings, and they would have a round, literally a round table. All the member states would then publish the findings, what they were doing, and the the, the results go on the, the, the website, and then the following year, there's a, there's a further discussion, a follow-up discussion, to discuss what has happened in the intervening year, what countries have done in order to rectify some of the major problems in the labour market. And this went on for about 10 years, 
More recently, it was replaced by something called the National Reform Programmes, which involve macroeconomic policies. But this is still ongoing. And in, when we crash out of the European Union, this will, will, will disappear. And again, I, I'll just say a few words about that. Um, the new EU surveillance system called the Europe 2020, known as the European Semester, brings together reporting on fiscal and structural policies under five headings, employment, research and development, secondary and tertiary education, poverty reduction and energy and climate change. And under those headings, countries every year come together uh, and they uh, discuss what they're doing under those different headings and they try to learn from a, a process of policy transfer from other countries. Um, and they, they submit their national reform programme every April. It's then discussed in July. And on the basis of the discussions, the Commission then produces what they call country-specific recommendations, CSRs, country-specific recommendations, which are agreed by all the heads of state in the Calendar Council. And under those recommendations, the countries then meet the following year to discuss what progress has been made. So in the case of the UK, we submitted in April of this year, April 2019, um, our responses to the CSRs of the previous July. <laughs> And one of them was a, a complex macroeconomic issue I won't go into, but the other two were on boosting housing supply under the heading of poverty, and then also addressing the skills and progression needs of, of uh, apprenticeships. In other words, ensuring that apprenticeships were effective and they weren't just paper qualifications. And in particular, encouraging the UK to invest more in upskilling those within the labour force. Um, and so this coming July, well, maybe not, I mean, by I'm sorry, I mean, next July, but, but when we'll no, I'm certainly be out of the European Union, so I suspect the whole thing will collapse. But that rolling programme of assessment was a structured programme by which all the countries could discuss on a kind of, in a soft law framework, their macroeconomic policies with specific reference to things like research and development, employment, climate change and so on. And that will, of course, disappear once we're out. Now, that brings me on to my final bit before I hand over to Simon. The assessment, you know, where does this actually all leave us? Um, well, uh, the fact is that the progressive economic deepening of the European Union through the common market, through the single market, through the Eurozone, has been accompanied at each stage by deepening of employment policy, including the hard law I've mentioned and also the soft law. Um, and I would want to argue very strongly that there's been generally a progressive role played by the European Union throughout this period. Um, not least because in the 90s uh, there was a system of qualified majority voting introduced into the Council of Ministers which allowed the, the uh, or rather prevented the veto of particular countries on certain progressive policies. And during the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher held up any number of directives and this ability to hold up directives was abolished when we signed up to the social chapter in 1997. So it means there's a system of qualified majority voting which then unleashed a logjam of, of, of potential for progressive policies. There have been, in, in the, well, I was going to say recent past, in the last 10 years or so, there have been a number of quite reactionary European Court of Justice cases, Laval, Viking, 
Ruffert and Luxembourg, which some of you will know about, which have tended to put a break on some of this. But overall, my own personal view, if you're taking things in the round over the last 40 years, I would say that the role of the European Union has been very progressive, not least, too, because it's led to an enhanced role for employers and for unions through the process of social dialogue. I mean, not just on the formal institutions of the European Economic and Social Committee, but also through intellectual, uh, intersectoral social dialogue and a huge range of sectoral social dialogue processes, which have led to agreements in any number of areas, from sexual harassment to training, health and safety and everything else. Um, and also, of course, uh, the social dialogue has been introduced into the directive creation process. Um, under the Maastricht Treaty, uh, the employers and unions at European Union level can negotiate an agreement which can then, under certain circumstances, be turned into a directive by the Commission, by the Council. And that has been used for the part-time workers' directive, the fixed-term uh, contracts directive, and also for parental leave. And I maybe one to others as well. But certainly, that is a very major step forward, because it means that the employers and unions have a formal role in actually legislating within the European Union. Um, and so, again, that, I would argue, is a very progressive role indeed, too. Um, and, of course, it's extended labour rights across all the areas I've mentioned. I'm not going to read out 70 directives, but nevertheless, um, you know, take it from me, it's a very, very large area, very wide area. And the worry, of course, um, and, and I will, you know, just finish before I hand over to Simon, is that, you know, without... That without the, the floor of rights, which is guaranteed by the European Union, infringement of which risks European Court of Justice intervention, uh, we, we seriously risk a libertarian, conservative government of the future taking us into a direction that we really don't want at all. And I think this is the nub of the, the, the issue, which I will finish on, which is that we, we, it's not just about employment rights, is it? It's about the kind of society we want to live in. It's the kind of social protection we want to see for people, whoever they are at work. And my concern is that without the background, without the, the support of the European Union, we risk a low-wage, low-cost tax haven drifting off into the North Atlantic, um, whilst just across the Channel, the European Union continues to legislate, in fact, without the... Europe, without the UK, I suspect it may find its role enhanced in that sense because we won't be a break on them anymore. Whilst the European Union does regulate for new challenges in the labour market, for example, the gig economy, uh, artificial intelligence at work, digitisation, all these areas which are going to be very challenging for us over the next 10, 20 years, the European Union manages to regulate those areas, we don't. And the risk is a drift into a kind of low-cost tax haven, as I say. And, and that's really, in my view, what we risk with Brexit. And I think it's on exactly that point that I can hand over to Simon, who I think will probably take us into the future. Thank you.